appreciate your coming in today to hear the lesson the Lord's given me. All right, well, if you want to be turning there, we're going to be in Romans 5 today, but let me just give a little build-up on where I'm going with it and why I'm there. And, and as usual, everything that I'm in study in has something to do with getting ready for a chapel message at school, so it makes it convenient that I can, you know, take one message and develop it and study for two. So it's very helpful. And what has been driving my my messages at Lakeside and really my oversight of it as a evangelistic uh, ministry, and that's primarily why we're here. Education isn't secondary, but it's a very close second to evangelism. We're there for the gospel as we have many unsaved kids there. But the phenomena that we have there as well is we we have something that's mirror imaged in, in the U.S. that of the students we get and the parents who come to interview with me, the majority of them say that they're Christians, even though our entrance into our school, because we're open to, the, to all comers in our neighborhood uh, for evangelism and for the gospel, says, here's what we believe and teach. Just check the box that you understand. This is what we're going to be telling and teaching your children. It's not checking the box that say, hey, I'm one of you and I'm right on board with everything that you say you are. But the phenomena in America is that, and this was borne out by polling. And anybody heard of Barna polling? Does polls mainly Christian-based that over a decade ago they're polling. And the question in it must have been simply, are you a Christian? Because 80% of America would check that box, and in their polling it would come back and say it's in the 80% range. And they knew, as, as any discerning believer would know, that can't be true. Yet I see it in parents coming in to want to enroll kids in our school. They know they're not checking a box to say, I'm one of you, but I am. They're telling me why, and it doesn't take too many questions to find out their understanding and view of what a Christian is and does is not entirely biblically based. The interesting news is on these polls that Barna being one that knew that their polling wasn't precise enough to get good answers, they revised their questions, and along the way they changed the question. I think it said, are you a born-again believer, getting more biblically based in their, in their language, and that number dropped significantly. It dropped to 54%. And that's still a number that they felt was too high, wasn't really getting it in the truth. So the, the interesting thing is, is that between 2008 and 2009, four different groups did more refined polling where they really drilled down to biblical language on what a Christian is and Christian does. Two of the groups were evangelical, Barna one of them. Two of them were secular because there was this question of that can't be right. So how many of those Christians are there? out there, and this, here's the scary number, that they all came back with a number very close to the same, and it was under 10%. Under 10% this time. And from reading those things, because youth ministry is a part of what we do, evangelism is what we do, um, we look at, I look at those things, and it kind of drove me into a series of chapel messages with our students, and it's simply titled, The Many Versus The Few. Yeah, to really get down to getting students to think biblically about what is a Christian and what does a Christian do. And it started out with a message in Luke, I think it was chapter 14, uh, around verse 23, 
where a unknown, unnamed man had an opportunity in the midst of Jesus' teaching and walking along from point A to point B, he gets this opportunity and it's just there in Scripture to ask and get the answer for a question that must have been very troubling for him. And his question basically came out, Jesus, is it true that only a few are being saved? And that must have been a troubling question, having been following along, hearing what Jesus is saying, and it dispelling some of the things that he may have, have believed and thought. And you'll have to go to Luke 14 to find Jesus' answer, but it's basically that many will think they're saved, will be at heaven, but few are getting in, that Jesus does not know them. And you've seen that before in Scripture. And so Jesus' answer is basically, yes, it's true that a few are being saved. So the many versus the few is my ongoing theme in those chapel messages because if you look at 80 or 50% versus 10, there's a big gap. And what is going on in that gap of people who say, I am, but when it comes down to very precise biblical language in these new polling questions, they're not with Scripture. They're somewhere else. They've got a definition of what a Christian is and a Christian does that doesn't coincide with what Scripture says. So in our work at the school, between staff and everyone that works there, we are on board with really teaching our students the depth of Scripture so that they never leave us not knowing what the Bible says, what God says about what salvation is. And we want to make it clear what the Bible does teach a Christian is and does, showing with definitive response from scripture that it's god's power that saves and it's god's power that we derive our walk with god after salvation so there's two problems that are central in dispelling this misinformation i think about those people who are in that gap that believe they're saved but don't really know what the bible says that need answered two key questions one of them is what shall be done with a sinner in relation to the penalty for sin all face as all are guilty of sin. What's going to be done with the penalty? Second question then, how does God deal with the problem of the power of sin that continues to dominate one's life? And theologically, the answer is in understanding the meaning of of theological terms of justification and sanctification. Justification deals with the guilt, and sanctification deals with the power of sin in one's life, in a believer's life. So we're going to look at the linkage of that, because I think it drills down. There's a lot of reasons why there may be this gap of misinformation on why people say, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, yet they really have no discernible walk that backs that up. So the linkage between justification and sanctification today, we're going to look at it as Paul dealt with it in Romans, the end of chapter 5, going into the beginning of chapter 6. There he's dealing with an error of the day, a little different than what I think is a big error going on in our time. There it's an issue of grace and how people misinterpreted what he was teaching about grace and salvation. Today I think it's a different but somewhat similar issue, and it comes under the heading of what's being called easy believism, that suggests that one can be justified, can be saved, And that sanctified living can come along another time, at a later date. There's no linkage there. And one can go on sinning and still yet be saved. And both of these errors, I think, are somewhat similar, but they result in the same thing. Really happy sinners. 
Okay? They get to continue to sin, yet they think they're saved. And I think that kind of encapsulates these people who we see in Scripture that Jesus says, come to heaven's door and say, the Lord let us in. And he says, I never knew you. So let me go ahead and pray. If you're turning to chapter 5, we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, just thank you for the opportunity to have the time this week to prepare this message. Thank you for what it taught me. And Father, just pray for all of us to hear you and, and understand uh, the, the depth and truth of your word and, how, and, and what we hold and believe, Father, so that as we teach others, Lord, we are defining and, and giving the detail to others what the truth of salvation is and what a Christian is and does. And Father, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just if I'm going to start in chapter 5, I'm going to give the brief, quick rundown of what's uh, happened up to this point where we're going to begin today. And, and so it isn't a, a complete overview of Romans 1 through 4, just a brief overview. But starting in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul began to describe the depth of man's depravity. So let's turn to Romans 1, 28. Where Paul writes, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And he goes on from there into chapter 3, and he gives a thesis on man's inherent sinfulness. And he has some categorical statements that he comes up with, that there's none righteous, there's no one who understands, and there's none who seek for God. And he gives a, a summary out of that, that man's Nature is utterly sinful. He's guilty. He's condemned and he's hell bound. And that man's attempt at doing right according to the law of God fails, as the law can only do one thing. If you turn to chapter 3, verse 20, all the law can do is expose knowledge of sin. So in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So no one could be justified in God's sight by working to meet the law's demand. But then Paul turns a corner in verse 21 where he writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. He turns a corner in that man can be justified before God through faith in the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. And God reaches down to unworthy and undeserving man in unmerited mercy and grace, offering a full pardon, an acquittal of their penalty, and it is through the perfect finished work of Christ. And that work is so complete, it is so acceptable, it is so powerful, is the cross work of Christ, that it's able to justify even the greatest of sinners. And there's no one so sinful that God's grace could not make them righteous through their faith. Paul ends chapter 3 by clarifying to the Jews and to us not to make an error in our thinking about this free justification of God's abundant grace. Since we are fully justified by faith in the object of Christ's work, the law is not nullified, it is established. Christ did what we were incapable of doing. He lived the perfect sinless life to the perfection of the law. He died the perfect substitutionary atoning death on behalf of all who would put true repentant faith in him and his finished work. 
And the law's requirements, though, haven't changed on us. Christ did what was impossible for us. And as we will see as this lesson unfolds, gives us the power to do what we're incapable of doing prior to our salvation. And it is the ability, having been justified by faith, to walk in righteousness. As that's one of the keys we're always trying to put forth to our students to think about. If you say you are, do you have then what the Bible says you should be in relation to how you think, act, walk, and talk in this world? So Paul winds down the first five chapters, and I'm going to read verses 20 and 21 of chapter 5 to get us started. He says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has made his case that justification is by grace through faith alone. He's clarified the purpose of the law. It didn't offer righteousness. It revealed man's sin. He makes the revelation that the law makes to us just how great of sinners we were. And the law shows just how far apart we are from God's righteousness. As the law increased our understanding of our sinful nature, grace came, Paul says, and it abounded even more and greater. And as we get into the heart of what he's teaching us here and what God wants us to know, we want to look at an argument that some were making to Paul about what it might mean if grace was so overabundant to the sin of man. Some hearing Paul had proposed a grievous error from this teaching, and and just to paraphrase what they were hearing, would be this, if more sin generates even more grace, then why don't we just sin like crazy? And God will just cover that with yet more abundant grace. So we're going to look at Paul's argument about this error and find this truth, that true believers who are definitely justified, definitely saved, are also definitely sanctified. And that fits with the error that's going on today under this heading of easy believism, or you might call it decisionism, where I think there's a lot of the issue why there's this gap in why people say, yes, I am, but there's nothing discernible about who they are as a change that shows that Christ is really in them. So Paul's premise is this, justification and sanctification are two different realities, yet they can never be separated or isolated one from the other, and that's the mistake that is the inherent in the error today in easy believism, that there's a separation there. So then it's incongruent to suggest one is a Christian yet not have realized a changed state and status directly the result of their union with Christ and thus impacting the walk of the believer. So let's go ahead and read the verses I'm going to be in in full for the context. We'll start again with verse 20 of chapter 5. I'm going to go through verse 7 of chapter 6. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So we're going to look at three benefits. We'll get through the first two today or partially through the second one given the time. First, three benefits. All true believers realize through the cross work of Christ. Benefit number one, that since we are justified by faith, we have received freedom from the penalty of sin. Verse 20 and 21 again says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the build-up to chapter 5 is Paul is anticipating this common objection he's been hearing about grace abounding. Paul states in, in chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased or abounded, he's saying literally grace superabounded. And Paul uses terms here to align and order the magnitude of things from lesser to greater. And our sin, he is saying, is so great that there was no way we could ever earn or work or prepare to meet God's righteous demands. And he makes it more than clear in those first five chapters that it's beyond our ability. But when we comprehend the enormity of grace as found in the sacrificial death of Christ on behalf of the sinner, you can't help but be astonished at the magnitude. So the terms that he uses and the magnitude of that grace, the terms he uses of superabounding, I I look at it, it's like a tsunami is what grace is. Your sin can be... When you realize your state and status as a sinner versus God's holiness, you get the enormity of that. But when you comprehend grace, it's like the tsunami that overtakes all of that sin and washes it away. And you're astonished by the magnitude of a loving response to something that God finds so utterly detestable, and that's our sin. The law acted like a floodlight. It was turned on us to show us just how sinful we really were. And I've used this analogy in the past. It's like that perfect day when you just happen to open the curtains at the right time and the, the rays of the sunlight flood in at just the right angle. And what you, you don't see 364 other days of the year, you suddenly see right then and there that in the entire space of the room you're in is literally filled with dust from top to bottom. Anybody know that? Sorry, Carl, I just don't want to suggest you're not a good housekeeper. You are. But everybody has seen that? There is so much dust, you go, oh my goodness, I can't take a breath. That's all going in me. And that's what the law did. It was a floodlight to show us just how sinful we were. We were filled with it. And just like the dust in the house, we're unconscious to it until that point the light shines on it. And that was the law's purpose. It exposed all to the depth of man's sinfulness versus God's holiness. Not only did we have Adam's sin accounted to us, we added sin after sin after sin as we live on. And like a worker, Paul tells us, who earns wages, we accumulate wages of sin in our personal bank accounts. And the penalty, Scripture tells us, we're familiar with it, for just having one cent on our account is death and eternity in hell. 
And in the verses in Romans 3, chapters 21 through 26, I think it's important to read. We'll just go back there real quick. 3.21 says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul gives a clear foundational truth that the only solution of us being freed from the penalty of our sin was Christ's blood propitiating our sins. And throughout Romans, he's building the point that we would see that man's greatest need was for a substitute sin bearer who could redeem us from sure death due to sin. And another analogy I've used in the past, and it falls flat with with students because they don't do this much anymore, but it might hit home with more of us is there was a time when the word redemption was a big word in my life, even though I was about yay big and had nothing to do with the biblical definition. And that was if I ever needed cash to buy something, and back in the 60s it wasn't a lot of cash, but you could, or I could ride my bike with a wagon and go through the ditches in our countryside area that we lived in and walk those ditches and people threw their soda bottles out the window. And they would be down there, and we lived in Washington State, where water flowed through those ditches. And those bottles, you just pulled them out of the mud, and the mud would be in them and caked over them. And you collected them to the point where mom would take me down to the store. Any grocery store, didn't matter where you went, they had to take the bottles. And there was no requirement that those bottles had to be cleaned up first. So they went to the grocery store in the condition I pulled them out of the mud. And I was always amazed at at one thing, that never did a grocery store clerk pull a bottle out and say, this one's a bit much. This one has too much mud and dirt. It's too far gone. I'm not taking that one. They took them all, and you got your two or three or four or five cents per bottle every time. And what I was just reading in Romans 3, verse 21, Paul tells us of this glorious truth that we're justified as a gift of God's grace through the redemption of which is in Christ Jesus. His point is that Christ came to save the most horrible, vile sinner. It didn't matter how much mud and dirt you had in and out. No matter how far in the gutter you were when grace finds you, no matter how much dirt and filth of sin was stuck all over you, he was there to redeem you. By the public display of Christ on the cross, spilling his blood, taking our penalty, Christ's righteousness was fully displayed. Our faith and trust in his work, and when I say his work, I'm I'm encompassing his first breath to his last breath. We often talk about his death and resurrection. That isn't his complete work. It was his sinless life along with it. And through that, God's wrath on our sins was averted, our sentence commuted, because Christ bore our sin and took our penalty. Things we know well. But again, when we're talking with, we're in my world talking with sinners, and I think they're in that gap. 
They may say I'm a believer, but they're missing the truth. It's important that we have the truth down. I think these are all things we know and believe. I'll go on just a second. There, there was one more bit of reading I've done recently on these polls that dropped these numbers down to 10% or below 10%. Those are scary numbers. Further polling by two evangelical groups got to some different questions, and that's what's going on with our youth today. And it's talking about our youth. Not talking about unbelievers now, but what's going on with our youth today. Barna is plugged into the big denominational churches. They get data in, so they get real information to go by. And they came up with new statistics that are really quite frightening, too, for us. So it's important for us. We know the truth, and we're teaching it to our children. And that is 70% of church children grew up in the church, went to Sunday school, went to youth group, maybe in Awana, whatever. They're walking away from what they did as a family between high school and college. Further digging down and questioning is, do they ever come back? Yeah, about 20 to 30% do. They come back at a day when disaster has struck and they come back to the Lord. But that still leaves a lot of our kids in that gap. They walk away and they never come back. The importance of us knowing the truth and teaching that to our children is paramount. So we praise God for the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and we praise God that grace reigns. We're free from the penalty of sin. Those who have put saving, repentant faith in Christ's substitutionary work on our behalf, we receive that benefit. So that's the first benefit we receive from Christ's work on the cross. We're justified by our faith in him. We've received freedom from the penalty of sin which means hell no longer holds us and sin no longer reigns over us. We're redeemed, we're forgiven, and we're at peace with God. I'll get as far as I can through the second benefit here and conclude next week. The second benefit we receive from Christ's work on the cross. We are sanctified and we have received freedom from the power of sin. Let's look at chapter 6 again, verses 1 through 4. Paul here is answering those critics. The error of the day. What shall we say then, he asks. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I can't imagine how he, in his own voice, would read verse 2. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we speak of sanctification, we generally think of it in the terms of a process by which a believer is gradually and progressively transformed and conformed over their lifetime to live more and more in the will of God. And that is, that is true. But that's become the prevalent thought about sanctification and there's another side of it we need to grasp as well and think about in the terms of sanctification as scripture defines it also as a once for all definitive act we use theological terms such as calling and regeneration and justification as acts that god affected once for all not requiring repetition by their nature, then they're, they're definitive. They have happened in the life of a believer and a chain of events that theologians call the order of salvation. But where does sanctification fit in the life of believers? Because this, I think, is the error of today. That you can make an easy decision and say, yes, I want to be one of you. 
But there's no then moving forward. There's no walk. There's no indwelling Christ in them to give them the power of that walk. So what about sanctification in the life of a believer? When does the living out of holiness in our inner behavior so that it is manifested into what we call our walk begin? Well, one answer to that that Paul will give us outside of Romans, if you'll jump to 1 Corinthians to see how he answers this question. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes to the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He uses past tense language. It is an event that has happened. Sanctification in Christ has happened. And if you turn over to chapter 6 of the same book, verses 9 through 11, Paul further writes, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of God. So Paul would answer that question as saying, yes, sanctification is a definitive act in the life of those who are truly justified and saved. He says, and he uses past tense language in all of those verses. You were justified, you were sanctified in the name of the Lord and in the spirit of our God. So the fact that every true believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling them indicates that the walk of holiness of every true believer begins on day one. So we're compelled to look at sanctification as something used to reference some decisive action that occurs at the inception of our Christian life. It characterizes our identity as Christians. So therefore, it's it's invalid to think of sanctification purely as something progressive in nature that's going to happen another time. I've used this story in the past too, and I think it's, it's perfect for this looking at, uh, at sanctification in that everybody should be able to think back to when they were saved and know those things that went away. The part of their life, the actions, the attitudes, the areas of life that were sinful, there's something that almost everybody can key in on and say, I didn't do that anymore. In fact, in our new member paperwork, there's a key question. What changes have been made in your life since your salvation? There should be something that you can identify. But I've told this story before about Augustine, who was saved as an adult, who had an addiction to prostitutes. He receives the truth of Christ and salvation and puts his faith in Christ. One day he's walking the streets when a friend, a prostitute that was especially fond of him, sees him going the opposite way down the street. She calls out loudly to him, but he doesn't look up. He keeps walking. She runs across the street, catches up to him, and grabs him by the sleeve. So now he has to stop and look her in the face. And she again calls him by his first name, saying, it's me. He looks her in the eyes and replies, I know. But it's no longer I. And he turned and he went on his way. Just to make the point that as we look back on our salvation, there is something that we can say we walked away from. That was sin. 
For me, it was a pattern of using foul language in the Lord's name, and it stopped. It was ugly and revolting immediately, and it was revolting when other people did it. And back where we're at in chapter 6, there's this group hounding Paul about his teaching on grace, making claims of increasing sin. Why not increase sin if it makes God so delighted to increase grace and cover it? And that was an error in their thinking. And their thinking would be similar to what I'm talking about today with this easy believism that sanctification can come at a later time after we're justified. That the need for obedient living is a work not required in salvation, and and it's an equal error. And Paul's opponents are spreading that error that believers were free to sin as God will cover it all with yet more grace. And he refutes the argument, I think, completely in verse 2 of chapter 6. Again, it would be nice to hear him in his own voice. But he says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So his argument is it can't happen. We've died to sin. And we can understand that term, I think, well. When we're dead, we no longer live in the sphere of the living. If I were to fall over here on the carpet and be dead, you continue to breathe and and the body's functioning. Mine is quit. I'm no longer in that sphere of the living. And that's the point Paul's trying to make. There's been a disconnection. You can't exist in that sphere any longer, meaning the realm of an unbroken pattern of sin has been disconnected. We know by Scripture, and we need to remind ourselves of this from 1 John, that believers do not become instantly sinless, but they do continue to sin, and they sin less. And Paul talks about this a little bit more in verses 6 and 7, where he says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he has died He who has died is freed from sin. Death to sin means that we no longer serve sin as slaves of it and to it. When Paul says we're freed from it, he means we have been justified and released from its penalty and that now we no longer live for sin, but we live for the one who was responsible for our freedom from sin. Instead of rendering service to sin, we render service to Christ. Any pattern of old living that was sinful is to be replaced with a new pattern that is sinning less immediately, and that is our ongoing walk, identifying those areas and walking away from it. So Paul doesn't give an inch to the thought of those who would suggest this, why not sin and sin and sin in order to allow grace. It makes God happy to do this, and let's just keep sinning so that God can be thrilled with his superabounding of grace to cover it. And that thought is incongruent with the realities of salvation, and Paul is just flat out done with the argument. He says, may it never be. The realities of spiritual life wrought by Christ, the regeneration of our old stony heart to one that is new and spiritual, that state of being born again or born anew or born from above, it dictates there be a decisive and definitive breaking of the power and service to our sin nature. And Paul's not alone with this thought in Scripture. First Peter 2.24, Peter writes, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 1 Peter 4, 1-3, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. 
because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time, and I, I love this, what he goes on to say next, for the time has already passed. The time behind you and each one of us, it was sufficient for every one of us to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, he calls it, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drunken parties, and abominable idolatries. We've had our time there. It's done. The point of Peter echoes Paul's point. We have died to the old way of life. That pattern of the past is dead. So die to your sin. And that's, I think, probably where I'm going to have to drop it and pick it up next week. So we've talked about two benefits so far. We'll pick up the second one and finish it next week. First one, since we are justified by faith, we have received freedom from the penalty of sin. The second benefit we're in, we receive from Christ's work on the cross, and that is that we're sanctified and we have received freedom from the power of sin. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Let that truth reside deep within us so that it is walking with us. It's in our talking. It is in our understanding as we would teach our own children, as we teach others, and we evangelize your gospel. Father, we do lift up Steve now for the message. We pray again as we are here to hear your voice and walk in your word, Lord, that our hearts and ears are wide open to hear and receive and act. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.